Good morning, yeah. All right, some of you are awake this morning, that's great. Um, praise God. Uh, any morning you, that God wakes you up is a good day. And, uh, you know, without a doubt, uh, losing someone that you love has to be among the most gut-wrenching of experiences that people go through. It is awful. Amen? It's awful. Uh, don't ever let anybody tell you, by the way, that that death is natural or that it's normal. Or, well, you know, death is just part of life. Sometimes people say these things out of a desire to be comforting, but nothing could be further from the truth. In reality, death is not part of life. It was never designed to be part of life. And when you are grieving someone that you have lost, part of what you're doing is, is, having, is having your soul absolutely crying out that this is not the way this is supposed to be. And part of what it means to be human is that as a creature made in God's image, you have a sense of right and wrong. And part of that sense of right and wrong is not just about moral things, but about things like death. That your soul screams, this is not, this is not natural. This is not the way it's supposed to be. It shouldn't be like this. It is like this. And it's painful that it's like this. Right? And praise God, uh, it will... Even though death reigns now, it will not always. Amen? That will not always be the case. Uh, and in fact, um, that we have great promises, part of which we're going to look at today about how death is dealt with. Um, but imagine, if you will, that you're a brand new Christian and you have been enduring persecution uh from the point just weeks after you came to faith in Christ for the first time, uh, and everything that you, that you know is just the basics of the Christian life. You don't know everything there is to know yet, but you know that Jesus is coming back. You know that one day that the world will be made right again. Uh, that there will be a time of great tribulation uh, when, before that happens, before everything in the world is made right again, you know there's going to be this period of great trouble. And on top of that, you know that some of your fellow Christians have recently died. Now imagine that that's your situation and some of the questions that you would have in your mind. Among them might be questions like these. Do Christians who, are, who have already died, do they stay dead? Do they miss out on the kingdom? Like, what happens to them? Do they miss it? Does the fact that we're being persecuted right now mean we're already in the tribulation and somehow we missed Jesus' return? I thought Jesus said He was returning soon, and I'm suffering right now, so like, sooner would be better. <laughs> like, when is soon? Right? And part of the reason that Paul and, the, uh, and Silas and Timothy have written First Thessalonians to this group of people is to answer some of these questions. And so 
We'll look at at, uh, at chapter 4 and chapter 5 here in, in 1 Thessalonians. We'll get into 2 Thessalonians after that. We'll answer some more of these questions. But, you know, this has real relevance to us. Because while we here at Chile Bible are not experiencing anything like um, this kind of persecution, uh, raise your hand if you have been killed for your faith. Right? Uh, none of us have had that happen. Right? We've not had any of that occur, but in our church, I know there are a lot of people, lots of people, who have experienced deep pain, deep grief and loss. And some of us have questions about what exactly happens to Christians who die. You know, you might have some vague hope that, well, they're in a better place, but not really know what that means. On the other hand, even if we know all the answers to all these questions about these things, it's always good to be reminded of the truth that God has given for our comfort and for our encouragement. Amen? So I want to look with you at uh, a portion of Scripture here today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Uh, and I invite you to stand uh, and follow along as I read. Uh, stand if you're able. If not, feel free to remain seated. This is what the Word of God says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Father, uh, I pray also that we would be encouraged by the promises that you have made to us in your word. Uh, Father, help us to understand these things and to take comfort from them. Uh, that whenever we might grieve, whether it's now or later, that we might be reminded of your great promises and your great love for us. And the fact that wherever we are as believers, we are always with you. And Father, uh, help us to, uh, to do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, uh, verse 13 says that we grieve with hope. Uh, that is, that we don't grieve like non-Christians who have any. Uh, and it is easy to forget that sometimes. Non-Christians do not have the same kind of hope that we have. Let me just walk you through kind of some of the major worldviews here in the world, okay? If you're a Muslim, your hope, here's what it is. You hope that you have kept the five pillars sufficiently enough that as you walk, and this is how they talk about it, as you walk over on the edge of the sword into the kingdom, that Allah will let you in. You hope that you've been good enough. But you can't know for sure, and you can't know for sure 
if anybody that has already died is going to be there when you get there. You don't know for sure. It's all based on good works. And by the way, wouldn't it be a bummer to have done one good work short? Like you mean if I'd bought one more box of Girl Scout cookies, I'd be in, but now I'm in hell? Like what gives, man? You'd think that you'd publish a list or something, you know, like of how many were required. That's, that's a Muslim's hope, though, is that they have done sufficient number of good works to outweigh their bad deeds that they've done and that that will somehow guarantee them a spot in heaven. By the way, you know why people why the idea of jihad is popular? Because if you die in jihad, you're guaranteed. That's why. It's not all about your 72 virgins. It's about the fact that you have a guaranteed spot in heaven if you die. That is a lie, but that's the hope that they have. Okay? Let me give you another one. Okay? If you're a Buddhist or a Hindu, guess what you're hoping for? You're hoping for extinction. You can see, in a a Muslim or a Buddhist or other pantheist belief system, you believe that you don't really die, that you're reincarnated over and over and over. And by the way, uh, if you have lived life and it's been painful, how would you? How many of you would like a repeat of all of that? Right? Uh, not so much. And so what you're hoping for is that you will attain, how many of you all have heard this term as something other than the name of a band? Nirvana. Okay, what nirvana means in Sanskrit is nothingness. That you literally disappear as a distinct individual and you meld with the universe. Like Neo at the end of the Matrix. Right? You just kind of become one with everything else in the universe and you cease to exist and that's the relief from pain that you've been seeking. Well, that's, that's hopeful. I die and there's nothing left of me and that's the best thing I have to look forward to. That's great. Right? Let's see if the Muslims have got anything on this. You know what I mean? Like, I, If that's my other option. Or here's another one. Okay, how about atheism? If you're an atheist, do you know what your best hope is? Your best hope is, is that this life is really all there is. That's what you're hoping for. Is that there is no God, as you believe, and, that, and you're hoping that this life is all there is. Now, if you're an atheist, I hope for your sake that that's true. Because if it's not, you are woefully unprepared for whatever comes after. But, but also, if you're an atheist, I hope that this life is great. Because if you're born, let's say, physically handicapped or poor, and this life is all you got. And that's not much for today. Never mind for the hereafter, right? Life for most people has been nasty, painful, and short for a long time. Right? So if you're an atheist, that, that kind of stinks. And if you're wrong that there's nothing after the grave, well, that's worse. Right? 
Because now you're about to go meet a God that you have spent your entire life denying the existence of. And that, that may not go well for you. Right? But what about Christians? If you're a Christian, you don't grieve like these people. Why not? Because you grieve in hope. And our hope is not like other people's hope. When the Bible talks about hope, it doesn't talk about hope like, I hope it's 60 degrees tomorrow. Right? Which I do. But, um, but I, do I have any promise that I can rely on that it's going to be? No. Maybe it will be. Maybe it won't be. I don't know. But I hope it's 60 degrees. I hope when I go on vacation this summer that it does not rain. Right? I have zero ability to affect the outcome and, I, and it might be that way or it might not be. But either way, uh, I'm just I'm, I'm talking about it as something that might happen or might not, right? Biblical hope is nothing like that. Biblical hope is that I believe in something that has not happened yet, but which is certain to occur, because God, who never lies, has made me a promise. You feel me? So, if, I mean, I can't trust the weatherman, right? Like, they don't know if it's going to snow you know, tomorrow afternoon, right? Or if it's going to be 70. They don't know. The weatherman is the only job you can have be wrong 90% of the time and keep your job, right? And so, uh, but they don't know. I mean, seriously, I think if they if they had a, a wheel, it was like the wheel of weather, we're going to spin it and we're going to make our prediction that for tomorrow, okay, they probably do as well as they do now, right? Oh, we got double Doppler weather radar, right? And we know. No, you don't, right? You don't know diddly do about, about any of that, right? Their word is not reliable, but God's word is reliable. And even though we're talking about events that haven't occurred yet, we know that they will because God is not only reliable in His Word, He controls the event. He is sovereign, He is good, and He makes promises that are always, 100% of the time, without fail kept. And so, when we talk about having hope for the future, we're talking about things that we know will occur, but have not happened yet. Right? So when we grieve, we grieve with that kind of hope. Relying on God's promises that will, for a fact, come true. How do we know they will come true? Because of all of the promises that God has already kept. He's got a great track record. He bats a thousand every time. Right? If you had, a, if you had that kind of a ringer on your baseball team that you knew was hitting a grand slam every time he was at bat, you would always have him bat fourth in the rotation, right? <laughs> because everybody's coming home, right? Always. The things he has already done, the promises he has already kept, uh, are uh, absolutely going to going to come true. And and these things that Paul is talking about and the other apostles are talking about here in this chapter are promises for the future that are certain to come true. So, uh, look at verses 14 and 15. 
the gospel, what these verses tell us is that the gospel means that all Christians are always alive. Now I know that may mess with your head a little bit, but hear, hear, what, hear what the passage is saying. All Christians are always alive. Always. They're not always alive and visible on this earth, but we are always with the Lord. Always alive. God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And we are permanently alive. Now, what's our hope based on? It's based on the Gospel. Look at verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. What's that? That's the Gospel. The Gospel is that Jesus died for your sins and was raised from the dead uh, to give you new life. Since we believe the Gospel, in other words, Paul is saying, then... Um, then we know that everyone who believes in Jesus has eternal life. Amen? And, and since those things are true, when we die, guess what? We aren't actually dead. We aren't actually dead. And so that's why Paul uses the term here, fallen asleep. That for a Christian, death is like going to sleep. And your body stays asleep until the resurrection of the dead, but your spirit departs and goes immediately into the presence of Jesus where you are still alive. Your spirit never dies. It's, in, it's with Jesus in one location or the other, but you are always with the Lord. Always. And you are always alive in Christ. So... Um, because we're sinners, we're, our bodies are still subject to death, right? If you don't believe me, look at some former photos, fo fo photos of you from former days, and then look in the mirror, all right? Your body is subject to death. You're in process right now of dying, okay? That's a reality. But our bodies are subject to death because we're sinners. But because we believe the Gospel then our spirits are alive with the Lord and will be conscious in His presence for all eternity. And if they weren't, by the way, look at the text, okay? If they weren't, it would make no sense if our spirits were not alive with Jesus. It would make no sense for Paul and the apostles here to speak of Jesus bringing those people back with Him. Right? If they were still here, in other words, it would make no sense to talk about bringing them back, right? Back from where? Well, back from where they are now, with the Lord. Uh, and so we aren't dead, but alive, even when we our bodies die. Bodies sleep in the ground, but the, our bodies are the only part of us that sleeps in Jesus comes. Now, Look at verse 14, uh, 15, rather. Okay, uh, This includes a teaching based on, quote, a word from the Lord. Okay? Uh, and it includes, that word is that Christians who are still alive when Jesus comes back will not precede those who are asleep. Let me unpack that real quickly. What, what the apostles are saying here is that they received this teaching by a word from the Lord. And, and in context here, that means by direct revelation that 
Jesus spoke to them directly and revealed this to them. There's no verse in the Gospels that tells them this. They got it from Jesus personally. And second, the word precede means that people who are still alive when Jesus comes back uh, aren't in line to meet Jesus ahead of the people who've already died. They don't get any special reward from Jesus for the fact that they are the last generation alive when Jesus comes. They're not in any way superior to the first generation of Christians. If you're in the final generation, you're not better than the folks in the first generation. Uh, people who are alive at Jesus' return. But what happen is that in the moment when Jesus returns, we'll all get our resurrection bodies at the same time. First, the people who've already died because they've been waiting longer. <laughs> and second, those of us who are still alive. Alright? Uh, at the same moment, we get our resurrection bodies together and then it says that we will be with Jesus when, when He comes. So, uh, now look at look look me at verses sixteen to eighteen. These have some glorious promises here. Uh, verse sixteen tells us that Jesus' coming will not be a secret. Okay, uh, Jesus talks about that in Matthew, I believe it's chapter twenty-five, when he says, "Sometime in the in the future, there'll be people who will say, well, Jesus is here. Jesus is there. Jesus is you know, you go like don't go out to look. When Jesus comes, you'll know he showed up." <laughs> All right. How will we know? Well, look at it. It says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. In other words, and I don't know what a cry of command is, but considering the fact that Jesus intended the Gospel to go out to the entire globe, and every Christian on earth will be aware of Jesus' return, I would guess that a cry of command big enough to be heard by everyone on a planet that is 25,000 miles in circumference will be loud. Okay? Is that a safe statement? You, In other words, it will not sneak up on you. <laughs> okay? Jesus' return when it comes will be obvious. In fact, it will be audible. And my guess is it might be something like what Jesus says to Lazarus in John chapter 11. Remember, He says to Lazarus, who's laying in the grave, come And out He comes. You know, kind of hopping His way, mummified out there, right? <laughs> and, and all of these people whose bodies have, have died will rise from the grave. And then immediately after, uh, those of us who are alive and are left, when he comes, right? But it's not just the cry of command, it's also the voice of an archangel. Again, I don't know how loud an archangel can shout, but based on Revelation, uh, their voice can go out to the entire globe at the same time. I don't know. Again, I've, I, I've, yelled, I've yelled sometimes, right? Ask my kids. Uh, they can tell you about it, right? But it's never been the shout of an archangel. You know, we try to keep it at a at a at a level the neighbors can't hear, right? <laughs> but um, but uh, uh, you know, what were you doing? You know, that kind of thing, right? Um, 
But this is different than that. This is different than that. This is the, the, the voice of an archangel shouting and the sound of the trumpet call of God. Now, I used to have a trumpeter living in my house. Okay? And it could wake you up in the morning. Amen? But this will be something that will be loud enough that the whole earth can hear it. This will not be a secret. It will be loud. Right? There will be no there will be no one who misses it. Like, huh, Jesus came back and I didn't I didn't know. Like, huh. <laughs> you know, it just kind of snuck, you know. I mean, I had a I had a friend in high school who um who thought it would be funny to mess with his sister. And uh, you know, we'd been learning about the rapture at church, and so he had his he had his shoes kind of, you know like he was going up the stairs and then empty socks and then pants and clothes up the stairs, you know, like, ah, I got raptured and you missed it, right? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> and she came home and she was like, Mark, <laughs> you know, where are you at, you know? <laughs> and, and, uh, and his mom was like, so Stacy, did you think that you missed the rapture? And she goes, no, I knew I was going to be with Jesus. I had questions about Mark. <laughs> right? But uh, anyway, uh, but you won't be able to miss it. Okay? When Jesus returns, you won't be able to miss it. Won't secret. All right? Um, and again, since verse 14 says that the saints who have died are coming with him, when it talks about resurrection here, it has to be talking about bodily resurrection and of their resurrection bodies union uh, with their spirits that have returned with Jesus. So one of the things that's true about us as humans, we are a body and a soul. And so at death, something fundamentally unnatural happens to us. Our bodies and our souls are split. Our body rots. And our spirit goes to be with Jesus. But we're not designed to live that way. And we won't live that way in eternity. You'll get a new body. And a your spirit will join with it on resurrection day. Okay? So, uh, verse 17 explains what will happen to those of us who are still alive when Jesus comes back. Uh, we who are still alive on the earth when, when Jesus comes back, which says, the Greek word here, is the word snatched. <laughs> okay. Uh, it says caught up in the ESV. All right. But it's the idea of jerked suddenly. <laughs> right. All of a sudden, we'll be in the air and we'll be with the Lord. Um, in fact, I love the end of that verse. Uh, and so will we always be with the Lord. This is the event, in case you're curious, that if you're a theologian, you call the rapture of the church. It's Jesus Himself coming to personally gather all His sheep, which is very different from what happens at the end of, of things where Jesus said that the angels would gather people from every corner of the world and separate the wheat from the tares. Right? This is Jesus Himself coming for His people, the church, and grabbing them personally and taking them home to be with Him. This is, in other words, if you will, Jesus claiming His bride, the church, 
and taking her home to his father's house to be with him. Now, you may not know this, but this is this parallels very closely a Jewish wedding tradition. Okay? When a, when a Jewish groom got engaged, what he did was he went to her father and they made an agreement and so forth. And then he went away for a while, a period of undetermined length, to go and make a place for her in his father's house, literally in his father's house. They would build onto the house a place for he and his bride to live. And then when that was done, and his father told him that the time appointed for his wedding had arrived, whenever his father felt that he was ready, he would go and he would claim his bride and take her home to his father's house. And then they would have a seven-day celebration of their wedding with a feast. Okay? Does any of this sound familiar from your Bible? <laughs> right? So this is the day that Jesus goes and claims His bride, the church, and takes her home to His Father's house to be with Him at a feast. The Bible talks about in Revelation called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. By the way, that lasts seven years in our case. During the seven years of the tribulation, we, who are believers in Jesus, will be enjoying our wedding feast with our groom, Jesus. And then we will return with him to establish his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. Okay? So, uh, if you want to know more about that, get, get into that in more detail. Um, stay tuned. Come back next week. There's more on uh, this in chapter 5 and then in, in 2 Thessalonians. Okay. Um, but while that's going on, God will be bringing judgment on the unbelieving world. And what that will include is Him restoring Israel to her place in His purposes Jews will be converted en masse. They'll embrace Jesus as the Messiah. God will empower His newly converted nation of Israel to reach the world with the Gospel to an unprecedented degree. And millions uh, will come to faith in Jesus through them even as God's judgment is falling. Because the purpose of the tribulation is not simply judgment, it's redemption. And so there's going to be millions of people that come to Christ uh, even as Satan does his absolute worst, and even as God's judgment falls. There'll be a, a time of mass redemption. Now, if you want more on all the details on those things, I preached through the whole book of Revelation in 2020. Looking back on that, that might not have been the best year for that. But, but nonetheless, um, I preached through the whole book, gave a lot more detail on that, um, went into a lot of detail events, and it's not wrong to love digging into all these things. God gave them to us, and enjoying God's truth about these things is a good thing. But even as we are fascinated by all this, don't miss the point of the passage as we study it. The point of this passage, by the way, is not curiosity satisfaction. It is not so we can go, ooh, this is going to happen. That's so cool. Okay, It is really cool, by the way. But that's not the point. The point of the passage is verse 13, verse 18. We might not grieve as those who have no hope. Verse 13. And 
Verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. This is, this is God did not reveal all this stuff to us uh, just because He knew we'd be super curious about the future and want to know it all. They're given to us for our encouragement. They're given so we don't grieve hopelessly like unbelievers. How do we do that? How do we experience that kind of encouragement and hope even in the face of death? Because as somebody who has recently buried a family member that we love, let me tell you, you need hope and encouragement in the face of death. Amen? Death is awful. And grief is horrible. How do you have hope and encouragement in the midst of that? Well, I want to underline two key ideas from the passage here. Number one, the Gospel is our foundation not only for our Christian life, but for our hope. The apostles based all of their teaching in this passage on two things. Number one, that Jesus' death and resurrection means that none of us who die are dead. None of us who die are dead. We are, God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. He is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, right? He is the God of those of our loved ones who died in faith in Jesus. They are alive. None of us who die are dead. We are the church triumphant uh, if we're dead. But we are still alive. We're with the Lord. And number two, that Jesus, because Jesus is the resurrected Messiah and Lord, we can tr trust direct revelation uh, from him about what happens after death, right? I, I don't want to go to a restaurant typically because I want to try something new, right? Like, I've never been here before. I don't know if the food is good and I don't know if the servers wash their hands, but let's go eat there, <laughs> right? No, what I want to do is I want information from someone who has been, amen? who brought back information about it and said you should go there and you should get the burger because it's amazing. Right? Get that, you know, go to Johnny's Italian Steakhouse and get that salad with the hot bacon dressing. Right? Uh, every fat cell in your body will sing the Hallelujah Chorus as you eat it. It's fantastic. Right? Um, it, it you want information about places you have never been from people who have been. And who is the best source about what happens when you die and whether there is life after death? Jesus Himself who was dead and is alive. Hallelujah. Amen. And, and that is the reality that we have. So you can trust that when Jesus says to the Paul and the apostles, hey, let me tell you what's going to happen after death that guess what? He knows! And He knows what resurrection is too. And so we can trust His Word. And we can have hope in the face of death because Jesus who has been there on both ends, dead and alive, is the One who's coming to get us. And based on faith in Him, we have hope. Number two, uh, write this down, okay? Once we become Christians through faith in Jesus, 
whether we are alive when Jesus comes back or whether we die before Him, before then, then we are always with Jesus. Always with Jesus. So, He is with us now even though we can't see Him. And He is with those Christians who have died and can see Him. He's with them. And Jesus never abandons any of us. There's never a moment in our life when Jesus is gone. To die in Christ is to have your spirit with the Lord even though your body is in the grave. And there is a day coming all of us, all of us, are going to be together living in our eternal and resurrected bodies when both Jesus and our fellow Christians who have died and are already with Him, we will all be together. And on top of that, on the day when Jesus comes, what will happen is that the veil will be stripped away and we will see what has always been true. What has always been true. My grandmother died. The, one of the hymns we sang at her funeral was the old song. Um, and my grandmother, I think, was the last living church organist on the face of the earth. Um, but in any case, she, uh, she loved old church music. And one of, the, uh, one of the songs that she wanted us to sing at her funeral, which we sang, was when we all get to heaven. We all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we will sing and shout the victory. Right? And, and I, I still love that song. Uh, we don't have to sing it today. But I do love it because it's a reminder of great truth that one day the veil will drop away and we will see what has always been true, that Jesus has always been with us. And He's never left us. And when we die, we're with Him. And when we live, we're with Him. And it's all that has changed is our ability to notice that Jesus is with us. And we will be with the Lord and with His people forever and ever. Amen. So, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that we have Your great and precious Word to us. That because Jesus died and rose, that we who believe in Him will just like Him die and rise. And if we don't die, it will be because Jesus, the risen One, has come back to get us. And He will instead transform us in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, and we will be with Him and with our brothers and sisters forever and ever. Father, we look forward to that day. We look forward to our wedding day, the day when we are with Your Son, Jesus Christ, and we celebrate in that great party. I can't even imagine what seven years of feasting and partying and reunion with our Lord and Savior and with those that we love that have also put their faith in Jesus, what that will be like. 
Father, it's amazing to even contemplate. Uh, it's too big an idea for my little brain. But Father, we know that You love us and that these things will be far better than even we can imagine. And Father, we thank You for Your grace to us. We thank You for Your love. We thank You for sending Jesus to die and rise that we might die and rise with Him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.